Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. This is a very special edition of our Brown Lecture Series. And as a native uh, Illinois person, I can really appreciate all of you being here on a very cold for Baltimore Thursday night. So we think that it will definitely be worth your while to be with us. Now, many of you know, and I hope you realize how wonderful this is that the Brown Lecture Series is made possible by the generous, very generous support of Eddie C. and C. Sylvia Brown Foundation and their foundation. And tonight we are very honored that they are here with us. And Sylvia is looking very uncomfortable. But Sylvia, could you please stand up? Eddie is here. He's coming. This wonderful lecture series allows us to spotlight African-American writers and literature and provide free author programs and events for the public to enjoy. So we can't thank them enough. You may also know that they have endowed the African-American department in this building, and it is the largest collection of materials in the state open to the public, and we are eternally grateful for that. So tonight, we have a White House correspondent for American Urban Radio Network since 1997, who's covered three presidents. I think you see her getting on the stage now. <laughs> Miss April Ryan. And joining her in conversation tonight will be WBAL's own Lisa Robinson. I think this is definitely a one-two punch here. <laughs> now, Miss Ryan, I'm going to say some things about you, if you don't mind because she has the distinct title of being the only black female reporter covering urban issues from the White House. Many of you have seen her at those news conferences, asking those questions that we would like to ask, and just being in the room. And over the past 15 years, she's conducted one-on-one -on -one interviews with President Barack Obama and the First Lady Michelle Obama, President George W. Bush, First Lady Laura Bush, President Bill Clinton, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Vice President Al Gore, and there's just a whole list that I won't go through. Just say everybody who means anything in government in this country today and before. She's been credited by a White House historian as having the most radio interviews with then-President Bill Clinton of any reporter during his White House years. So in her new book, new book, <laughs> The Presidency in Black and White, she gives a factual and compelling behind-the-scenes look at the inner workings of race relations as it relates to the White House. So we are one, we are just delighted to have you. Thank you to the Browns for making this possible. Thank you, Lisa, for leading the conversation. Uh, she's back here tonight, if some of you don't know, in her hometown of Baltimore, and she still lives in Baltimore. So please welcome her, and thank you so much. 
Thank you, Dr. Hayden. And it's such a pleasure to be here at the Pratt Library with you, April. This is a place where my parents, who were Baltimore natives, used to come to court when they were young, uh, young, a young couple. So there weren't many places for them to go. It's nice to see you. And presidency in black and white. We've talked about this book over the years, and and your work on it. Let me let's talk a little bit about your journey to the White House. What? How did you? What were you doing right before? You got that job. My journey wasn't a typical journey. Um, I stumbled into the White House, White House reporting. And I started out, uh, many of you who remember WEAA, I was in college and spinning records uh, Friday, Friday afternoons between classes, and I played the same songs over and over again. Charday and... Um, was it Patti LaBelle? And this is supposed to be a jazz station. I'm like, if only you knew, and is it a crime? That's all I played. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and at the time, my uh, program director was Kwaisi Fume, the great Kwaisi Fume, And um, it was a great time. I was a freshman. But I wanted something more. I liked news. I, I loved news. I adored news. So what I thought... I needed to move into news. So ultimately, I picked up a couple of little uh, jobs at WEAA producing, and then I went on to WBGR that used to be downtown. Gospel Radio was news person there, left there, went to Frederick, Maryland, left Frederick, traveled to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Was there for, yes, yeah, I moved too. I uh, was there for 10 months and came back to Baltimore, and I worked at the quote unquote big old funky V103. <laughs> And heaven 600, one would take you to heaven and one would take you to hell. And <laughs> it was the worst thing in the morning. She'd be like praising God. Oh, I love this song. And then the song come out. Oh, yeah, okay. And trying to do the news. And then, uh, But in the meantime, while I was um, working at all of these stations, I would freelance for some of the networks, um, string reporting. And it was very interesting because this is a very, very, very newsy town. And we have places like the NAACP in this town, the headquarters of the NAACP. And at that time, it was um, a big news story with uh, then-President Ben Chavis. And yes, and he had uh, a lot of problems there, and we were continually breaking news. And every time we did a story that broke the news, the network that I was stringing for, American Urban Radio Network, said, hmm, and they took a look at me, and they said, what would you think about moving to Washington and, and working in Washington? I said, We'll see. And I didn't know it was the White House. If, it, if I knew it was the White House, I don't think the outcome would be what it is today. But it took a year, and they brought me on, and I've been there ever since. Okay, and so you are, this is your first week at the White House. What was that like? <laughs> it was the worst experience ever. Um, it's rough and tumble at the White House. For many of you who are in politics at the State House or at the courthouse here in the Baltimore area, um, you know the dynamics of the day, how things happen, the laws, the policy. Well, I'm coming straight out of Baltimore, not a Washington person, not anyone who um, was a Washington insider, one of the reporters who had sources everywhere coming out of their ears. I didn't have a deep throat, so I was... Basically, coming out of Baltimore, knowing politics in Baltimore, knowing the judges in Baltimore, I knew nothing in Washington. 
So, um, and not only that, I replaced a gentleman who was someone who was well-loved. He was there for like 17 years, the late Bob Ellison. He was actually the first African-American president of the White House Correspondents Association. So he was very well-loved. And when I came in, it was like, who is this little girl? Who is she? And I was like, okay. So I stumbled into everything, to the gaggles in the morning. It's like a football huddle with the press secretary in his office where the reporters and the press secretary would go back and forth to see you know, what the topics of the day are. And um, I, I would stumble into that. I didn't know what was going on. So um, I told my mother I was ready to leave, and this was the first week. She said, no, 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 no. She said, you have got to stay there for at least two years, because if not, people will think you got fired. So I've been there for 18 years. So. <laughs> April, I want you to explain to people how it works, because you're in specialty media, and then you've got the, I don't need that, I'm okay. Okay. So can everybody hear me? You're in specialty media. No? Okay. okay, you might need to use that one. Okay. Okay. I thought it was going to get Oh, that one works. Good. Thank you. Okay, here we go. All right. So you are in specialty media, and then you have the mainstream media, and it's sort of a dog-eat-dog world, you know, to get called on, to get the scoops, and explain how difficult that is and how it works. It's very, very, very difficult in the White House. Uh, the first two rows, every seat in the White House is accounted for. Their seats pretty much like the ones that you're sitting in today. Each seat has a plaque with a name on it or a company name. And your uh, status relates basically to where you sit in the room. <laughs> so um, I was praying that Rosa Parks, the memory of Rosa Parks, would work for me. Because when I got to the White House, I was way in the back of the room. I was in this sixth row. So at the end, and that was, like, really far back, and you really don't get called on. But the front two rows, it it starts off wires, uh, like the wire service, the Associated Press, uh, Reuters. Then it goes to television, your major news networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox. Then it goes to your newspapers, the New York Times, the Washington Post. And then it goes down to the lowly radio. So we're at the bottom of the food chain. And then being specialty media, not being from one of those major networks who, have, who has millions of viewers or listeners or readers, and you're targeting a niche audience, you're behind the curve. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out how you get noticed. You have to figure out how you get answers to your questions. You have to figure out how you get the principals to talk to you and how you get the principals to call you by name. All right, and you were able to do that with President Clinton early on. Yes. Tell us about that encounter and how it <laughs> supercharged your career at the White House. Um, again, I was this newbie out of Baltimore, you know, not understanding the, the political correctness in Washington, but I guess it still worked for me the way because I'm still the same way. Um, I walked in, I I just come from outside, and there's, in the press area, we're in the west wing of the White House. Um, I'm literally 150 feet, my booth is 150 feet from the Oval Office. And I was coming in from the outside and went into the press, the the lower press office where the White House uh, staff is located. And I wanted to go up to the upper press where the press secretary was, and still not knowing my path and, and my way, I said, can I go? Can I go upstairs? They said, oh, sure, go. 
And then so a Secret Service, a uh, uniformed Secret Service division guy said, you can't come up here. I said, but they told me to come. He said, you cannot come up here. I said, but they told me to come. And in the middle of all that back and forth, here comes the President of the United States. And I said, oh, how are you? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I understand why. So as he was walking, and Bill Clinton is very casual. President Bill Clinton is very ca- casual man. And he's a very nice man. And he's, he's gregarious. So as he was walking, he had a soft sourdough pretzel in his hand, just eating the pretzel. Very casual in his conversation, his demeanor. So I'm standing there like, oh, okay, this is the President of the United States. I'm new here. What do I say and what do I do? I felt like all the heat in my body went straight to my head, to my ears. And I'm standing there, and I'm watching him talk to everyone. And he's, like, standing right next to me. I'm like, okay. So I said, April, say something to him. And I said, hello, Mr. President. I'm April Ryan, White House correspondent for American Urban Radio Networks. Please call me by name and call on me when you have your next press conference. He's like, okay, yeah. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I was like, seriously, Mr. President. So um, a couple of days passed, and there was a press conference, and he did not call on me. So I said, okay, it didn't work. But the next press conference, he sure did. He didn't call me by name, but he was like, you, yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I said, it worked. So what I did, I just wrote a note to the press, wrote a note to the president of the United States, sent it to the press secretary to give to the president. The president got it. And the president wrote me back. I just told him basically, thank you for calling on me. Just something as common as a thank you, as nice and as casual as a thank you. And it started the ball rolling. And it started a, a, a relationship, uh, the two of you had a great relationship over Ex- You have to say re- what kind of relationship. Okay. It was- <laughs> Professional relationship. Professional, thank you, Lisa. <laughs> One that is, is uh, on the up and up, okay. Yes, very much so. <laughs> So tell us some of the highlights, and what were your thoughts of uh, Bill Clinton and, and even Hillary Clinton during your years? I mean, you were there for his interest in Africa. You were yes. there for his interest, well, in interns. <laughs> you were there for, but there were so many things. So let's start with wherever you want to tackle that. Well, first of all, um, one thing I find with presidents and covering three there are a lot of similarities, but yet there are a lot of differences. I believe, just from watching them and interacting with them sometimes, that I believe they do the best that they know how and the best that they can. Um, even in the midst of all the things that are hovering around them, I think they try to do the best that they know how and they can. Um, I find President Clinton a very interesting person. And one thing that we don't see with presidents, and we don't understand, yes, you have to be an extreme person to be a president of the United States of America. You have to be, it's the extreme of the extreme. Just to think about it, just to run for president of the United States, just to, I mean, you're basically secluded in 18 acres, the same things every day you see, you do. I wouldn't want to do that. But... Seeing President Clinton, um, he was a very interesting, he, he was a very complicated person in a way. He really liked that human interaction. He really liked talking. He liked realness. He liked people. And he likes people, I can still say that. Um, in the midst of all of that, 
he just wanted, I think he wanted to find realness, truth. And he, he liked the black media. He liked coming to talk to me a lot. He, he liked talking to us during soul food dinners. I mean, he wanted to talk with us during a soul food dinner. And we did an interview. I conducted an interview with President Clinton in his Harlem office in the worst snowstorm of the year last year, last January. And he remembers the soul food dinner that we had in 1999. And I mean, every time I see him, he's like, remember that soul food dinner? <laughs> he what says, did you have? What was wait a minute, hold on. He said, that's why I had my heart attack. <laughs> I said, no, Mr. President, that's not why you had your heart attack. <laughs> so, um, but what did we have? Let me say, um, I have an aunt this here. Where is she? Um, aunt Pearl, raise your hand. Where are you? There, she's in the back. Well, in the middle. She cooked dinner. She cooked the soul food dinner, a good portion of the soul food dinner for the president. And we had garlic fried chicken, chitlins, collard greens. Uh, <laughs> Cornbread. We had, uh, what else did we have? We had, uh, what is it, potato salad. We had a whole bunch of stuff. And he sat there and ate and ate and ate and talked and talked and talked. <laughs> they had to literally pull him out of the house at 1130 at night. He just kept regaling us. And he enjoyed it. He just needed that, just being a regular person. And in the book, and this is, this is, is something very telling in the book that he says, um, I said, you know, one of the last questions before I left him in New York um, last year, I said, Mr. President, why did you have, have dinner with us? He said, because I liked you. And he said, you know, people don't invite me to things. He said, th- he said think about it. You know, they invite me to, to speak at fundraisers and do this and do that. But they don't invite me for that human-to-human contact. And that was very telling for a lot of reasons. Just think about it. And I'm not going into it, but just think about it. So... You know, we were very, we are a very real group. We wanted to meet with the president because a lot of the white correspondents from the major networks, ABC, CNN, CBS, NBC, um, even the Washington Post, New York Times, they were getting these off the records with the president of the United States. And at that time, there were many African-American reporters at the White House. And we were asking, did you get an off the record with the president? No. Did you get an off the record with the president? No. Did you get an off the record? No one got an off the record. So we were like, something's wrong with this picture. So we asked then Press Secretary Mike McCurry about this. And at the same time, President Clinton wanted to hear from us about race, because his race initiative at the time was floundering, and partly because of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And he wanted to talk to us to see, you know, what we thought. He thought highly enough of us, and he had been around us, so he knew that we would kind of give him the honest take. But whenever you're around President Clinton, you just sit and listen. Because he talks, he can talk. It's like a monologue. And then sometimes it's a dialogue, but it's like he'll just talk, and you're like, okay. (laughs) But don't you think part of that is the kind of upbringing that he had? He didn't come Mm -hmm. from the typical... Uh, you know, well-to-do family. He came from. He was. He was someone who has been in every economic spectrum. He. He is. I mean, he is. He is every person. He has been poor. He has been middle class. He's been rich, and now he's extremely rich. Mm-hmm. He's. You know, he has been at the seat of power, coming from humble beginnings, um, from a broken home. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he. He. He was able to connect. Um, let's move on to President Bush. Um, do you feel that he is misunderstood by many, especially black Americans? And you had some lovely encounters with him and the First Lady. 
Tell us about your experience. Um, I do believe that he was misunderstood. I think a lot of the problem, and I know a lot of people are like, what is your problem? Uh, I do believe that, you say yes. <laughs> I do believe George W. Bush was not a racist. I believe, though, that if the administration had put in enough equity in the black community when Katrina hit, it would not have been so bad. But I do, at the end of my book, I give him an F for Katrina. Because any time a group of people feel disenfranchised from their country, any time people die, any time you see people who look like you, or you and you, I mean, it's humanity sitting on top of a roof begging for help. But when, and he and his wife both took offense to Kanye West. Yes. And to Kanye's uh, statements. And they couldn't understand why they were saying he wasn't, Caring about black people. They understood. They understood why he. They understood why he would say it, but they felt it wasn't true. I was coming back from Mississippi with uh, First Lady Laura Bush. Um, we had visited the people who were um, affected by Hurricane Katrina. We went to Mississippi. They had taken a large group of people to Mississippi. We went to several churches, and I'll never forget seeing just some women with babies, just so thankful for a mattress to sleep on. And it was, it, was, it was devastating. And I saw the tears from those women. I saw the tears from the education secretary at the time, Margaret Spellings, who it was, it was a situation where you would just overcome because this does not happen in this country. And um, we were flying back, and she said, she said that um, Mrs. Bush said it was appalling you know, that what Kanye West said, because it was right after Kanye West had said on the telethon, George Bush doesn't like black people. Mm-hmm. So and she was appalled by it. And um, it, was, it was a very interesting time. And then I'll never forget, because hearing all of this and seeing what I see, and I was trying to marry this. I'm like, what is going on as a reporter and as a black person? Mm-hmm. And, you know, President Bush and I had talked, had many conversations and, and this is one of the reasons why I do not believe that he was that way. I mean, he, I believe that he really wanted to see change in this country when it came to Barack Obama. I believe that he has tried to help Barack Obama by not speaking on Barack Obama's presidency. And that has helped him because everybody else in the party has come out and targeted Barack Obama, whether you like him or not. This is what I see. But the reason why I say this is because um, I was pregnant at the time with my, my youngest child, who was, okay, she, I thought she was sleeping in the chair. <laughs> I was pregnant. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I was pregnant at the time with my youngest child, and I couldn't travel to the last Africa trip. And they, we, had a, uh, we had a very interesting conversation and interview. And I was in the car with him in the motorcade. Uh, we were driving back from this event um, about Africa. And he just started talking to me about the presidential election process with John McCain and Barack Obama. And we started talking about the racism. And he was like, I said, there's, you know, overt. And he said, yeah, and subtle racism out there, too. He said this to me. And not just that. I mean, I know, you know, the relationship that he had with Condi Rice and how she would pull him and say, look, because of what happened in the past and because of this act being passed I am allowed now to eat at a restaurant I'm here you know Um, and and there was one telling moment when um, 
the election night. Everyone else was in Grant Park. I was so fortunate to be at the White House the night of the election. And the fabric of this country just shifted and changed. That night, it was the most moving night, but I did not cry. I watched Wolf Blitzer at 11 o'clock in my booth say Barack Obama is the 44th president of the United States. And I was in shock, covering two white presidents. And I'm like, and not only that, 43 presidents have been all white, all white men. And I'm like, what? And I was in shock. And I mean, I couldn't believe it. So I got up, walked down the hall to the Fox uh, News booth where uh, African-American reporter Wendell Gohler was, was reporting. And he was sitting there. And I just stood and looked. And he looked at me. And I mean, we were in a state of shock. And I walked into the room he just turned around and grabbed me by my waist and just started crying. And it was, a, it, was, it was a moment. And then the next day, the crazy thing about it is, because President Bush and I had been talking about Senator, then-Senator Barack Obama, he was, I don't know what it was, but he was getting ready to come out to make a statement in the Rose Garden about history being made that night before. And... He was pacing. I, I wasn't sitting or standing where the reg, other reporters were. I was standing uh, by the Oval Office in the French, and looking through the French doors, and I saw him pacing. He was very angry. And I just stood there and watched because when you're a reporter, you want to see everything. You want to be able to report on every piece of the presidency. And then all of a sudden, he turned and looked outside that door, and he saw I, I was standing there. And all of a sudden, he did this. <laughs> <laughs> He raised the roof. So everybody, I mean, the dynamic in that room totally changed. The atmosphere in that room totally changed. Even the National Security Advisor, Steve Hadley at the time, came out to look to see what happened. They were fussed. I mean, something, and I never found out what the problem was. But it just changed the atmosphere there. So... He was knew. A little moment between you and yeah, we and we have been talking about race. So, and even when we were uh, going to the Katrina anniversary, I took off my reporter hat, and we were in the flying oval in the uh, flying oval in the, the the office in the in Air Force One. And before I conducted that interview, I said, "I just want to let you know, there before the grace of God go I." That could have been me there. So sometimes you do take your reporter's hat off and you speak truth to power. And, uh, but then you have to put it back on and shut up and, <laughs> and record them and see what they have to say. So. All right. So now we're up to President uh, Barack Obama. Yes. How did things shift? Let's talk a little bit about the shift you saw in the nation and the shift you saw in your work environment at the White House in those first few days and in the, even in that first year. They came in scared. Uh, the Obama administration people came in scared. I mean, they seemed very confident, but they were very scared. Here you have people coming from Chicago, not part of the Washington infrastructure, and they were nervous. They they hunkered down and stayed to themselves, basically. I mean, they they believed in loyalty, and, and they still do. Um, but it was a time when they said, we're not going to make any new friends because they were scared. I mean, this was something we have never seen before, and they had to figure out how to navigate these waters. So one of the ways to navigate the waters is to understand that he is a president who happens to be black. So that's what and how they walked through the first term for four years, pretty much. 
even with the, the beer summit issue. They still walk that way because they said race and politics will always follow him. But they did not want to, quote, unquote, amplify issues of race because it takes the conversation on a whole nother track. It puts it on a whole nother track. So they wanted to try to keep the narrative, keep everything the way it was going without bringing race into it. But the, there were so many in- instances of racial issues, the, the booing during his state of... Uh, you lie. Uh, yeah. um, other, you know, just utter disrespect in terms of not going, uh, you know, on the floor and then not, not going along with him on anything. I mean, some of the things that we heard elected officials say and do um, were pretty outrageous, and I'm surprised that no one, you know, what do you think if someone had come out and said, you know what, and Rahm Emanuel or someone said, look, this is right, you know, we know what's happening with the president. They Call knew clearly what was but happening. But no one would speak up and say Because it, it would change. They, they kept this, we're going to take the high road. And it worked. They had to strategically do what they did to gain this second term. And now second term Barack Obama is different than first term Barack Obama. So, <laughs> yeah, so. And, and how did you see the, the first family, see that family come in there? I mean, they came in with young girls yes. and with a grandmother. And it was like a, you know, it was very much a traditional um, black family. And, mm-hmm. and so... Um, explain what you saw in, in that and how they were perceived. Because they certainly did make that transition in a very um, thoughtful way. Yeah, but you know, and, and this is what I don't get with, with mainstream media. They were like, oh, and, and, and the grandmother will be watching the children. How many of us have right. are watching your grandchildren? How many? I mean, seriously. I mean, I'm like, huh? So I didn't understand all of this. I mean, this is something that happens. I mean, my aunt takes care of my children. And, um, you know, you, you go with people that you know. And that's something that I knew. And I'm like, I didn't understand some of the dynamic of what people were saying that was, oh, this is different, this is new. But, yeah, I guess bringing the mother in and having her live over top of the house, <laughs> it was new and different. But that is something that we do in our culture. And it was different to a lot of other people. And um, What about all of the, the security breaches that we've seen with President Obama, beginning with the um, Salahis. dinner crashers? Yeah. I mean, that, you took a lot of heat on that. I took a beating. I, it was terrible. And you um, write about it in the book. I write about it in the book. Why, t- explain to, to us why, what was um, your thoughts about I was hearing from, when you're in Washington, you are, if, you're as good as your sources. And my sources were screaming, calling, emailing, texting, left and right. This is not right. This is not right. Things are happening. And I was hearing so much about so many different things as it related to security, as it related to how things have changed with the admittance of people into the White House. And I heard from inside and from outside. And in the book, The Presidency in Black and White, um, I have the... uh, Admiral Roshan, I don't know how many of you watched The Butler, but at the end of The Butler, you saw Admiral Roshan, the young man, Admiral Roshan. Well, Admiral Roshan's not a young man. He's a, he's a little bit older, but he's in the book, on the record, about what happened um, that state dinner because he actually encountered the Salahis. So the Salahis were um, trying to get something exciting and extraordinary for their Bravo TV show, The Housewives of D.C., mm-hmm. So they're going to crash a White House state dinner. Wow, that's great TV. So they came in perpetrating and um, claiming they were invited when it's proven that they weren't. And it was 
in their mind it was a misunderstanding. But I'm hearing a whole bunch of stuff about how things have been changing and what happened. They threw the Secret Service under the bus because it used to be if you're invited as a guest to the White House, you have several levels or layers of security. You would have the social office who has the list of those who are invited as well as the secret service. So if the secret service was list if the secret services list was wrong, it would be double checked by the social offices, a social secretary's office list. But the social secretary's office wasn't there. Um, unfortunately they were at the dinner and um, sitting at the dinner. Mm-hmm. So um, the Salahis came in and um, they took pictures with everyone. The president Vice President, Rahm Emanuel, the leader of India, and anybody. I mean... <laughs> nobody stopped anybody. Nobody stopped anybody. And, I mean, it's about... It's, it's more than just about metal instruments or organic instruments. Your hands could be lethal weapons. So they got in... They, there was danger. Danger, Will Robinson. There was danger. Mm-hmm. So... Um, they were there, and they took these pictures, and I mean, all the media saw it, and it was the big story the next day. And um, I wound up getting information, and I got too close, because there was a loyalty and a tightness there. Mm-hmm. And I got too close. It was two days of questioning, and um, Donna Brazil, who happens to be a dear friend, she kept text messaging me, why is Robert Gibbs disrespecting you? And this was the first day it started, mm-hmm. but the crescendo happened the second day when everyone saw Robert Gibbs tell me that, um, calm down, my son, something about my I tell that to my son. I said, okay, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay. So it was pretty bad, but ultimately they went back to the way they had uh, admitted guests before because of the questioning. Um, and the parties that um, were involved are gone. I'm still there, so... <laughs> All right. You, but it was about security. It was about security. It was about, and it's not just about this president, even though he has a lot of death threats on him. It's about any president of the United States, security of any president. Imagine if something would have happened to a president of the United States in this day and time. And it doesn't just have a ripple effect here in this nation. It has a ripple effect around the world. All right. Before, so. I, thank you, April. I think we're going to try to open it up to the audience. Um, but I just wanted to, you wanted to talk about one other thing. And that was, um, you wanted to talk about an experience you had with the First Lady Laura Bush uh, at the Corcoran Museum. And you write about it in the book and, and how this encounter brought tears to your eyes. Yeah, it did. Um, there was a, and this is going along with the, the racial thing with uh, George W. Bush's administration. I think he got caught up in a lot of the Republican ideology and philosophies and, and the practices. But there was a situation that happened um, I had hosted something for the First Lady and another OTR off the record because you want to hear what is going on. You want to know what the President or the First Lady is thinking. These are the people who kind of influence what's going on. Well, not kind of, they do. So we had an OTR with the First Lady, and she uh, took me out uh, for a, a thank you lunch to the Cork, and we walked across the street to the Cork and Art Gallery. And at the time, there was a G's Bend exhibit. Yeah. The G's Bend Quilts exhibit. And it was the most beautiful exhibit I have ever seen in my life. And we walked over, and the exhibitors were there. 
the descendants of slaves from the G and Petway plantations were there. And they had all their quilts in the five rooms on display, meticulously hung on the walls. And as we walked to the, um, to the gallery, we talked about our own grandmothers. She was talking about how her grandmother made quilts out of old wool suits. I know that was a hot quilt. <laughs> and I told her about you know what my mother used to tell me um, about how my grandmother would make quilts with the expanse of the room, how she would frame it out. And to this day, I still have one of my grandmother's quilts um, in my home, and we use it. And we were talking about the quilts, and we went there. And we walked in, and those quilts were beautiful. I saw one quilt, and it had red, white, and blue all across. It was very patriotic, and it had the words vote scrolled all throughout the quilt. There was another quilt uh, this, this, uh, the exhibitor had. She, um, her husband had passed, and she took his, his uh, overalls that, had, uh, that he wore in the sweet potato fields, and it still had the dirt and the sweet potato smell on it, the fragrance of sweet potatoes on the, the overalls. She made that into a quilt. She wanted to sleep with him at night. She still wanted to be close to him. And seeing and hearing these stories, I mean, I was filled. And the exhibitors were older women for the most part. And then when we finally got to the last room, these older women just were so taken. And they grabbed the first lady and just put her in a huddle. Now, I know these women weren't, Demo- I mean, weren't, uh, weren't Republicans. I- I'm sure they were Democrats. <laughs> but they grabbed the first lady and just started crying and weeping and said, Thank you, Jesus. And I couldn't, I mean, just from recognition of the pain of their lives, they didn't care what party, they just said thank you for at least acknowledging. And I mean, I was done for the rest of the day. It was just, it was just moving, and um, I will never forget that. There are a lot of experiences like that that you come across, and luckily I had that chance to see that. I mean, it was, it was one of the most amazing, the soul food dinner, and that dinner were some of the most amazing experiences that I had. To see Bill Clinton sit there and eat chitlins, <laughs> collard greens, garlic fried chicken, and uh, what's that, potato salad on one fork. But it's at those moments that humanity shines through. Yes. And that's when you kind of get to the feel of who they are. And that's why these OTRs, these off-the-records, are so important because... You need to find out who these people are. They've got your lives in their hands. You want to know who they are and what they're thinking. So, um, you know, and I'm like, why not me get an OTR? Everybody else gets one. I want one, exactly. too. Exactly. Yeah. All right. I know that we probably have some members of the audience who want to ask a question or two. If you have a question, you want to come to the mic here? or this one? Um. Hello, Ms. Ryan. My name is Carl Nelson. Um, so obviously you've been a journalist for 30 years now, so you're a veteran. Um, but, <laughs> but I'm not old. <laughs> not old. You look, you look, I'm not old. <laughs> you look young. You look young. So, um, but you had some early adversities, I'm sure. Uh, you were talking about even when you were you know, in the White House and next to Bill Clinton didn't know what to say, just you know, kind of told yourself, just say something. Um, how did you deal with some of those early adversities and being unsure about things, just trying to kind of break out? I'm as a journalist and establish yourself. You got a room of a lot of successful people here, and I'm sure, um, I mean, a lot of successful people here. 
And um, I'm sure that you have to overcome it. I'm sure that they would tell you, you have to overcome your fears and walk through it. Because if you see what you want, you got to go for it. you got to keep moving. And um, I stumbled upon this. I didn't know. I mean, um, he, he was here, um, the president of the University of Maryland at Baltimore. I was, I was nervous with, at the time, he was Mayor Schmoke. You know, I mean, he was just here. And, I mean, he's now a confidant. He's even in the book because he has advised me on how to handle something. So sometimes, sometimes you actually need counsel and mentorship from people who are smarter than you, wiser than you, who really have your best interests at heart, people who will ride or die for you. So you need to sometimes, you know, pull those people in to help you walk through. But you've got to walk through it and say later for all that other stuff. You can... Think about that later. I mean, sometimes, like even now, I'm like, I'm not, I haven't, I feel like I haven't engaged fully in everything that's happened. People say you wrote a book about it, you've engaged. But no, I think when you're in it, sometimes, like, for instance, taking a picture, you sometimes, I'm not calling you out, but I'm just saying, sometimes when, when you're taking a picture, like you're at your, your son or daughter's graduation, you're taking the picture, you don't feel the moment. And I'm like, now I've got to feel the moment because who knows, tomorrow it may not be. I want to feel the moment. And um, you just still have to walk through it, though. You have to walk through it. You're welcome. Um, as a veteran of, of the White House, you've been through several presidencies. What I hear from folks who are taking a similar path, that this is a very different feeling now with the, with the new Tea Party and, and sort of the the uh, separation between Democrats and Republicans. There used to be a, you know, we're, we're all in this together kind of thing, but not now. It's, um, you know, it's, I can't talk to you because you belong to that party kind of thing. What's your take on that? I don't know if it's I can't talk to you because you belong to that party. I think it's harsher. I think the tone is much harsher. I mean, it's, 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 it's a harsh tone in, in Washington. The Tea Party is guiding. And, I mean, there are a lot of Republicans who don't necessarily like what the Tea Party is pushing out, but they're guiding the narrative for the Republican Party. And, unfortunately, a lot of organizations, a lot of, par- a lot of groups have been formed because of what we see now. And that's unfortunate. And, and some of it falls on race. And that is the unfortunate thing. But I'm going to say this. When this president leaves, the wind is going to be let out of the sails. For one reason, you're going to either be upset because you hate him so much and he's gone, or you love him so much and he's gone. So we are at a, a time now that it's going to have to be whoever is the next president is going to have to be just as, as dynamic as this one because anyone who comes in, this president had so much for him and against him. This person is going to have to be just as much of a rock star coming in because you're going to be like, oh, they don't, they don't really rank. So it's, we've now gone into another phase. And then on top of that, things have changed because of social media. Social media has played a huge part in how we view things, how we see things. Because you can say, I can, I can kill a career by just getting out there and other people joining in, saying, so I can kill somebody, kill somebody's career by saying something, and other people are joining in. And just, I mean, it's, we have seen this in social media. And so because they say it on social media, it's true. And that's the unfortunate thing. Um, Ms. Ryan, have you ever had an OTR with um, either President Obama or First Lady Obama? Yes, I've had an o- several OTRs with President Obama. Um, I've not had one with, or ha- no, well, 
Actually, um, Mrs. Obama and I talked a lot um, at the last Correspondents Association dinner, and uh, we had a really good conversation. Um, that was my OTR, I guess, <laughs> in public, but yeah. Okay, we have another question in the back, or in the middle, or inside. Okay, that one, and then one more. Thank you. Um, can you identify a trait that you admire that is common among each of the three presidents. Um, I'm gonna, I, I can't say each, each, well, two of them have a similar trait and one of them doesn't. And, I'm gonna, and I want you to listen and follow me on this. I think with personality, I think President Clinton and President Bush are the closest in personality. They're both, both very gregarious people. Yeah. President Obama, he's very analytical. And he's, um, he's very analytical, and he, he's more of a professor kind of. He likes to teach. He likes to teach. And, I mean, he, he's a brother. He can get down. He can say some things. And what you saw at the State of the Union, I was like, there he goes, you know. So, and we, you know, we, we joke around the White House, second term, second term. So <laughs> it's like you, cause anything, he's like, he lets you know. It's like, yeah, I, you know, I'm not running again, hey, you know. So, but it's interesting to see how people, to watch people say, wow, he's really, he's, he's got jokes. He's letting his hair down. So he's, he's more of a... Um, He's more of a teacher, but and he's he he will talk to you and things of that nature. But I think Bill Clinton and George W. Bush are more gregarious, um, and I think President Obama has to be careful too as well because of the historic nature of his presence. So he has to he watches himself more so than the other two. I think we're I think we're going to be wrapping it up. And um, as we wrap it up, April, I just want to ask you, how do you think? President Obama will go down in history. <laughs> you're not supposed to judge a president <laughs> while he's sitting, but you, you're supposed to wait. It takes years for history to start telling. And, I mean, you know, we, we kind of look back now, Bill Clinton. At the time, we were like, oh, it was the worst thing in the world. Oh, my gosh. But look at the economy under Bill Clinton. Now we can say that was a heyday compared to where we are now. So I think it's going to take at least a decade to really say, hmm, Barack Obama. Right now, everybody's screaming about health care. Everybody's screaming about the economy and, and, and the budget you know, that he just presented because he's putting more money into it, and some people want to keep spending down because of the deficit. People are talking about ISIS. So we have to see. We have to wait and see. But one thing I will say, race will definitely be a part of whatever the legacy says. Um, the issue of Trayvon Martin, uh, New York, uh, Cleveland, and Ferguson will definitely be a part. Um, Health care will definitely, definitely be a part, because we're going to see how this plays out. Unemployment, black unemployment will definitely be a part. The first black president in unemployment is still the highest that it's ever been. So we have to see how it plays out. Um, we have to see how it plays out. I just want to say, April, thank you so much. I know Dr. Hayden's going to come up. Um, 
But we really, we really, really appreciate the work that you do, and thank you for writing this book. And everybody got it signed. And April wants you to read the book and let her know what you think of it. Um, Dr. Hayden, do you want to come up? She, she's left. Okay. All right. I'll let you take over. But thank you so much, April. So on behalf of Dr. Hayden, the Board of Directors and Trustees, thank you and Eddie and Sylvia Brown's generous donation for this Brown Lecture Series. We all thank you for coming. April will have some books outside. We thank Lisa also for moderating this panel.